Attacks will come whenever you get serious about changing your life to follow God's will. Count on it, my friends. The first line of attack will be ridicule, which we looked at in the first six verses of Nehemiah 4. Satan will try to discourage you by scorn. Nehemiah knew what to do with ridicule. He took it to the Lord in prayer in verses 4 and 5. But no sooner had he finished taking the ridicule to God in prayer than he faced another line of attack. This threat was literal. His enemies wanted to take him out. There is a legend about a missionary who unexpectedly met a lion in the jungle. Not seeing any way of escape, the missionary fell to his knees in prayer. He was surprised and comforted by seeing the lion kneeling next to him. Dear brother, the missionary said to the lion, How delightful to join in prayer when only a moment ago I feared for my life. The lion replied, Don't interrupt, I'm just saying grace. Nehemiah may have felt like that missionary. Ridicule is one thing, being someone's lunch is quite another. The second line of attack that we will face is fear. Whenever we commit ourselves to follow God's will, we will face fear. Fear will cripple our commitment if we let it. Fear will dominate our thoughts, leading to sleepless nights as we obsess about the threats or the perceived threats. My friends, you must fight the fear which cripples you. We can see three stages of fear in Nehemiah 4, verses 7 to 14. Most of us have experienced at least the first or second stages of fear. Some have experienced the third stage of fear. Let's, let's examine these stages to see what we can learn about facing our fears. Stage number one fear, alarm, alarm, verses 7 through 9. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. So let's set the scene. Nehemiah is facing the threat of violence from all around this tiny group of people rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The total population of the nation in Nehemiah's day was about 50,000 people living in the land, according to Nehemiah 7.66. However, nine-tenths of the population did not live in the city of Jerusalem, according to Nehemiah 11 verse 1. Scholars estimate that there were only about 5,000 people living in the city of Jerusalem at this time. Now, put that tiny population of 5,000 people into perspective. We have already met some of the enemies listed here. Sanballat is the governor of Samaria, north of Jerusalem. Tobiah is an influential official in the Ammonite government, east of Jerusalem. Earlier, we met Geshem, who was the leader of the Arab coalition controlling the region south of Jerusalem. Now we learn that the Ashdodites, 
had joined the coalition against Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem. Ashdod was the leading city on the Mediterranean coast west of Jerusalem. They were surrounded. Ashdod was an important military installation for the Persian navy. So Nehemiah and his 5,000 people were surrounded by powerful enemies who threatened to destroy them and the work of rebuilding the nation. The threat was real, and the danger very significant. It was a powerful coalition determined to stop Nehemiah and the people from following God and rebuilding the city. Nehemiah knew that it was highly unlikely that these forces would attack the city with their armies because he had authorization to build from Artaxerxes himself. However, they were very likely to sneak in and kill people in an underground war and then deny that they had anything to do with the murders. Guerrilla warfare was a common practice in this region. Notice that the text says that they will fight against Jerusalem, but it also says they will cause a disturbance in it. Even a large civil disturbance could bring the project to a halt. So the fear was real. This tiny, outnumbered group of believers faced a credible threat as they sought to follow the Lord. Do you ever feel outnumbered by the enemies of Christianity? Do you ever feel as if the world would like nothing better than to destroy conservative evangelical Christians? We know that they cannot kill us or assault us legally, at, at least in the United States of America, because we are protected by the First Amendment to our Constitution. However, that does not eliminate the fear because we also understand that the attacks will be more subtle than a frontal assault on the church. The enemies of Christianity grow bolder each year trying to use the levers of government to attack Christians. Christians in other countries, of course, face far greater threats, very literal threats. Our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, for example, have been experiencing horrific pain and suffering these past few weeks. My heart is broken for them, and I pray and I give to support them. They know that fear is real. They are facing a real enemy. Ukrainian Christians are surrounded by those who would like to destroy them. So I like Nehemiah's response. It ought to be our response as well when we face fear. Look at verse 9. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Nehemiah starts with prayer, but he doesn't stop with prayer. He prays and takes action. Nehemiah takes practical steps as well. He sets up a guard to protect the people from attack. We can summarize Nehemiah's response to stage one fear as pray and post a guard. Pray and post a guard. My friend Ivan in Ukraine is a great example the leader of a significant Christian ministry doing great work. He led people in prayer as the war grew. 
He also took his wife and children to the border so they could get out of the country safely. Ivan went back into the country and is driving supplies back and forth from the border to his starving brothers and sisters. He is doing all he can do to stand against the invasion while sharing the love of Christ with his neighbors. We have a tendency as Christians to think in polar opposites, to land on one end of the continuum or the other. Aristotle called it the law of the excluded middle. On the one hand, there are those who consider prayer something you do in your spare time, while action is what you do in your valuable time. So you fight. You attack the enemy before he can attack you. You hit back hard. On the other hand, there are those who think that once you have prayed, you have done all you can do to deal with the enemy. Just pray. Let go and let God. The battle is the Lord's, so stick your head in the sand and wait for God to work. Well, my friends, neither extreme is right. We should pray and post a guard. Nehemiah did not form an army and attack the enemy. That would have distracted them from the task of rebuilding the walls. The enemy would win because the walls would not be built. When we get caught up in the culture wars, for example, we become distracted. We lose sight of our mission. The enemy wins when we stop doing what God called us to do. What should we do when we face stage one fear? When we are alarmed by what is going on around us and the threats that others may pose to our Christian faith. We pray and post a guard. We set up warning systems to prepare us for the attacks. I applaud Christian organizations and individuals in our society who keep us informed about what is happening in our world so we can be prepared for the battles. On a more personal level, pray about your fears, but post a guard against those who might attack your faith on the job or in the neighborhood. Be prepared to give an answer. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.2, Be prepared to give an answer in season and out of season, but do so in kindness and gentleness. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.23-26, Seeking repentance, that's our goal, seeking repentance for those we meet, praying that they would come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, who is our real enemy. My friends, be on guard, but don't neglect the mission to speak the good news of Jesus Christ to both our friends and our enemies. The best way to alleviate stage one fear is to be prepared. If stage one fear is alarm, then stage two fear is despair. In verses 10 through 12 of Nehemiah 4, despair. The Bible college where I served for many years leased the basement of a church for our offices. We would be flooded in the early spring by heavy rains, which come before the ground around the foundation has thawed. And there's nowhere for the water to go, so it would seep back into the basement through cracks in the foundation. In fact, 
we would stop the drains in the floor because the water would back up into the rooms from the drains. The more we pumped out, the more would come in. Despair is like that. Despair leaks into our lives through the cracks in our foundations. The normal channels for dealing with stage one fears don't seem to work when you reach stage two fear. The despair just seems to seep back into our minds, despite our best efforts to overcome it. But there are some principles which we need to learn about despair from these verses, so that we can deal with despair better when it seeps into our lives. My friends, we must learn that despair begins when we are weary, in verse 10. Thus, in Judah it was said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Verse 10 is poetry. Most scholars think that it was actually a popular song which the workers were singing. Now it will never make the top 40 today, of course, but it had significance to them. The song pictured the way they felt just like many songs do today. The early enthusiasm for the work was gone. They were half done with the job, and it still looked like a mess. The rubble was still there, and nothing seemed to be working out right. Everything was going wrong. The work now seemed overwhelming, and they were dead tired from the effort. They were ripe for despair. Do you ever feel discouraged when you are halfway through a job? You buy an old house, and there are so many remodeling projects to be done. You, you start with gusto, but nothing is square, and the work seems endless. Each task opens up new things that need to be fixed. The work bogs down and eventually stops. Halfway into any job, we are ripe for despair. It is precisely the moment when we can expect discouragement to set in. Watch out for deadly despair when the job seems overwhelming or when you are weary from the work. Lack of sleep is one of the surest ways to fall into despair and quit under the pressure. Things always look better with rest. Sometimes the most spiritual advice we can give someone is to get some sleep or take a break. Prime Minister Winston Churchill, during the height of World War II in Great Britain, took a nap every afternoon so he would be fresh to face the ongoing problems. Former President Lyndon Johnson in Stonewall, Texas, at a ceremony recognizing highway beautification, told his audience he was feeling fine because he had followed the advice of an old woman who told him, When I walks, I walk slow. When I sits, I sits loose. And when I feel worry coming on, I just goes to sleep. Well, that's good advice. Because, you see, despair grows when we worry according to verse 11. In verse 11, Nehemiah wrote, Our enemies said, They will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. Propaganda works through worry. 
The Jews were apparently well aware of the threats which were being made against them. Perhaps their enemies wanted them to hear the, the talk so they would begin to worry. When you are tired and you get discouraged by the big bills or the mountain of work ahead of you, that's precisely when you will start to hear rumors about your job or about your failings. Fear grows quickly from alarm to despair when you combine weariness with worry. My friends, avoid conspiracy theories and foolish speculations because they will only lead to worry. Your mind will be filled with fears that lead to despair. Take it all to the Lord in prayer and focus on Him and His love for you. John Guest, in his book, Only a Prayer Away, tells a story about his landlady when he lived in England. She had a plaque on her wall, and the plaque said this, Why pray when you can worry? Why pray when you can worry? <laughs> Sometimes we just want to wallow in worry. We want to nurse those fears. We want to lick our wounds. Prayer is the antidote to worry. But too often we would rather worry than pray. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 7, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. We deal with worry by prayer. Turn the energy wasted in worry into talking with God. As John Guest writes in that book, Instead of nursing our wounds and self-pity, Pray for the grace to forgive. Instead of worrying about those for whom we are responsible, ask God to intervene and lift the burden from our shoulders. You see, we had better turn our worries into prayer, or our despair will quickly grow with worry. Despair begins when we are dead tired and grows with worry, and despair intensifies when we listen to rumors, verse 12. Listen to what happened in verse 12. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So the Jews who lived near enough to these enemies so that they overheard the rumors kept coming to Jerusalem and repeating the latest rumors. In fact, ten times these threats were repeated to the workers. Now, the Hebrew expression is probably not literal, but hyperbolic. They repeated the rumors, which grew into exaggerated proportions. You know, a hundred people are thinking this. A thousand people are do doing this. The idea is that time and time again, someone was reporting the latest threats that they had heard. The rumor mill was working overtime. And this is what conspiracy theories do to us. Rumors always exaggerate the threat. The molehill mushrooms into a mountain. Facebook built their business model on this reality of human nature. You click on a post and Facebook's algorithms take over. They will feed you more and more posts just like the one you liked. Pretty soon, that's all you see, and you think everyone is talking about whatever that rumor is. Unfortunately, 
That is the fastest way to intensify despair. Despair is like a contagious disease. It spreads by personal contact. If someone is always telling us how bad the problem is, then pretty soon even the most confident person becomes discouraged. One of the bad aspects of the church is how fast rumors can spread in the church. If we focus our constant attention on the latest report of attacks on our faith, then we will soon begin to despair. If we are reading and watching rumors about how bad things are, then soon we will fall into despair and quit. Sometimes the most spiritual advice we can give to someone is to get together with some Christian friends and refuse to allow any conversations about whatever problems they are facing or whatever fear they are experiencing. Just get together and enjoy the fellowship of others. Have some fun. Laugh and enjoy life. Stay off Facebook and other social media for a while. I do. Just take a break from Facebook or any friends who spout negative rumors all the time. The problems will always look more manageable after we experience some uplifting fellowship, some edifying conversation with Christians who replenish our spirits. There's an old legend which tells of an angel who was sent by God to inform Satan that all the methods he used to defeat God's people would be taken away from him. So the devil pleaded to be allowed to keep just one method. Just let me keep one method, Satan said. Let me keep despair, he begged. The angel, thinking this was a rather modest request, agreed to let the devil use despair to attack God's people. Good, Satan said. In that one gift, I have secured it all. Don't let the doom and the gloom of the latest rumors rob you of your joy, my friends. And don't spend all your time with doom and gloomers or you will become a doom and gloomer too. Stage one fear is alarm. Stage two fear is worry. Stage three fear is panic. Panic. Verses 13 and 14. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. There you have it. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. A timid airplane passenger asked the stewardess, how often do big jets like this one crash? The stewardess replied, as a rule, only once. <laughs> well, that's not very reassuring, is it? Not a very reassuring way to handle fear. 
Nehemiah is facing a crisis of fear among the people. The fear has reached the panic stage as the rumors swept through the workers. So it can no longer be ignored. Where is in stage one fear, Nehemiah prayed and posted a guard. In stage three fear, Nehemiah arms the people so they can defend themselves. You must fight this stage of fear with decisive action. When alarm turns to despair and despair leads to panic, then powerful actions are needed. Take action or panic attacks will master you. Notice the actions that Nehemiah takes to fight the panic. 1. He stopped the work. Now, I said earlier that the devil would like nothing better than to get us to stop the work, so don't be distracted by the attacks. Yet it seems likely that Nehemiah stopped the work at this point. Verse 15 says that they returned to the wall, each to his own work. And that would indicate that there was a temporary work stoppage to deal with the panic among the people. Sometimes, the situation is so serious that you have no option in your life. A panic attack is a crisis situation, and you must stop what you are doing and pay attention. This kind of fear is like the proverbial 800-pound gorilla. It gets your attention. Two, he organized the people. The nation was organized for war along the ancient Israelite system of family clans. The number in each unit was originally about a thousand men, but of course would be far less in this situation. And we'll talk more about the importance of teamwork in our spiritual warfare later in the story, but it's vital to handling stage three fears. Working together helps limit our fears. Three, he armed the men. Nehemiah has at his disposal a small arsenal of the best weapons of the day. Swords were used for hand-to-hand -hand combat. The typical sword was about 21 inches long and double-edged. Spears were used for stabbing or thrusting at the enemy from a distance. The bow, which was commonly used here, was the composite bow, which had a range of 700 yards, but was most accurate around three to 400 yards. Bows could be as tall as a man or as short as half the height of a man. Fourth, he encouraged the people. He gathered the people together to encourage them to take action against the enemy. There is power in numbers. We need each other. Never forget that spiritual renewal is not done in isolation. It requires that we gather together for mutual support if we are ever to gain victory over our panic attacks. Stage three fears mean that you better make sure and get together with other Christians for mutual support. One of the best antidotes to stage three fear is the fellowship of believers, others who can replenish and encourage you. Notice Nehemiah's exhortation in verse 14. He says, 
remember the Lord and fight for your brothers. Nehemiah is a practical man. He's not mystical. He is down to earth. He's not theoretical. He is practical. Yes, we must turn to the Lord when we face fear, when we face panic attacks. He alone can enable us to overcome our fears. We must remember that the Lord is great. The Lord is awesome. That will help us face the future. But it's not enough to remember the Lord. I I do not mean that God is not enough. God is. The biblical order here is significant. Pray first, not last. Remember the Lord first, not second. Get our eyes on God first, not last. But when we face stage three fears, we need to do more than pray. We need to take action. We need to fight. Fight the fear which cripples you. We sometimes develop a mystical view of faith. I had a friend who wouldn't buy health insurance because he said we should trust the Lord. So he trusted the Lord. But when the doctor's bills piled up, it was those of us with health insurance who helped him pay his bills. I knew a missionary who went out to Pakistan where my parents served as missionaries. But he refused to go under a mission agency like we went under because he argued that going under a mission agency showed a lack of faith that God could take care of you. Well, when they ran into medical difficulties, it was the other missionaries serving under mission agencies who therefore didn't have his kind of faith. It was those other missionaries that bailed him out and paid for him and his family to get back to the United States for medical attention. You know what? He never came back to the mission field. You see, practical faith takes action. Real faith does all that it can do to handle the problems we face and trusts God for the rest. I'm reminded of the World War II slogan, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. That is good biblical thinking. My approach to life is very similar. For example, take the COVID-19 pandemic. The fact that I wear a mask and get vaccinated is not a lack of faith in God. I do those things because they are wise things to do according to those who have the best medical knowledge. Then I trust God because I've done what I can do. I don't have to fear because I took practical steps and trusted God for the results. Practical action is not the absence of faith. Wise living is the expression of faith. That's why I say that we must fight the fear which cripples us. I don't know what fear Satan is using to cripple your soul today. It may be fear of failure, fear of job loss, financial fears, fear of what others will think or say, or fear of rejection. It may be fear of the future or fear of sickness or fear of death. It might be fear of false criticism and false accusations. I don't know your fears, but I do know that Nehemiah gives us a remarkable biblical balance 
for handling those fears. The monks in the Middle Ages had a motto which expresses the advice well. In Latin, it read ora et labora, which means pray and work. Pray and work. Ask and do. Trust and obey. There are two practical implications of these verses for our lives. First of all, my friends, pray when you face fears. Take it to the Lord. Throw yourself upon him and trust his power. He is great and he is awesome. Lay all your fears before God. But don't stop there. Fight back. Take action. Do something positive about your fears. Change your lifestyle. Eliminate the elements of your life that feed those fears. If Facebook is feeding your fears, drop off Facebook. If the friends you hang out with are contributing to your worry, then stop hanging out with them. I don't know your specifics, but make some changes in your life to address your fears. Take action. Then, when you have done all you can do, trust God to see you through. When you can't do more, rest in his ability to handle your fears.